Craig in the name of transparency. I, I like it when you're transparent. That's good. I would like to open up with a confession. Okay. A bit of shame. Okay. I, I went to Pub Trivia on Wednesday. Okay. Does it matter which pub? or Are they paying us? or? <laughs> no, they're not paying us. Come on. Okay. Then don't, <laughs> don't, mention, don't mention where. Okay. I'm not going to mention where. It was just me and Simon, so basically I was, I was on a team by myself. <laughs> and That's harsh. <laughs> I'm sure there's I, a lot about animal care he could contribute. <laughs> he did get the Destiny's Child question right. <laughs> okay. See? Um, teamwork. Teamwork. And the dream worked. Um, I got the first seven questions right and then proceeded to get the next five wrong. So, okay. Well, what were the five? Oh, like I'm going to read off every single question. Like yes, I remember. just to but prove no, that I, I can was, get them right. And then there's you were one wrong, question and in particular. There's one question in particular I got wrong that I should have gotten right. Okay. In the NFL postseason, who is the highest scoring kicker of all time? Well, that would probably be... Um, three-time Super Bowl champion and veteran Patriots kicker, Adam Vinatieri. See, the letter V kept sticking out in my head. <laughs> I knew it began with a V, and I couldn't remember any other part of the name. Okay. So and I you went like so Paul Verhoeven or something like that. Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Vince Lombardi. At least, at least Vince Lombardi has something to do with football. <laughs> Shut up. I just it, it, it's it's one of the biggest regrets of my life. Mm-hmm. And you should feel ashamed. Well, thank you, thank you for your confession, John. Welcome to the Aspiring Sauce Podcast. This is a confessional mm-hmm. for people who want to be smarter than they really are, or at least Absolutely. pretend like they're smarter than they really are. Yes. I mean, not us. We're not pretending. We are this smart. Yeah. <laughs> I, we should probably get the aspiring part out of the title, shouldn't we? I mean, we're yeah. already there, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, drop the, yeah, snobs. It's just cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> and to prove that, this week, we watched one of the highest-minded movies of the late 90s. Yes, we watched the Paul Thomas Anderson classic, Magnolia. Is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey, a master of the muffin, and author of the Seduce and Destroy system, now available to you on audio and video cassette. Seduce and Destroy will teach you the techniques to have any hard body blonde just dripping to wet your dock. Bottom line, language. The magical key to unlocking the female analytical mindset. Tap directly into her hopes, her wants, her fears, her desires, and her sweet little panties. Learn how to make that lady friend your sex star servant. Seduce and destroy produces against This is quickly becoming a 90s movie podcast, I'm afraid. <laughs> but we're hashtag 90s kids. This is true. Hashtag pog. Hashtag old millennials. <laughs> Regular millennials? I don't know where we fit in that. Get these fidget spinners out of here. <laughs> That's true. And get too me my for, Pokemon yeah. trading cards. Yeah. Too old for trading cards, too young for Gen X. There you go. Yeah. I think that's the cutoff point. Yeah. In any uh, event, Magnolia. Have you seen this before? I had seen this before. Okay. I had never seen this before. I'm, I'm slowly catching up on Paul Thomas Anderson's work. Yes, you which, are. Which, yeah. But you know, which me, I'm, I'm sure you you deeply admire, just like every yeah. other person, every other cinephile out there, in, out in the world, just loves the work of Paul Thomas Anderson. But you know me, I'm not a I'm not a director fanboy. I don't wait in bated breath for the next masterpiece by some hua or whatever. So, <laughs> but obviously, uh, there will be blood as a masterpiece. Uh huh. The master is great. Okay. Boogie Nights is okay. Okay, just just okay, just are you just sure okay, about that? just okay, okay, just okay, and then inherent vice is kind of boring. So, meh, he's he's got, he's a mixed bag for me. So I was I was looking forward to seeing what he at the time thought was going to be his best movie. Okay, so so you're only a, you're you're mild on Paul Thomas Anderson. That that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Excuse me, we have a divergent here. <laughs> we do not have somebody who's who's we do not have somebody who's completely floored with the work of Paul Thomas Anderson. He needs to be purged immediately. <clears throat> Greg, I stand alone. Okay, I'm a contrarian. Yeah, okay. indeed you are. Yeah, I look forward to kind your of a big article deal. <laughs> coming next week. Why Paul Thomas Anderson is not great. <laughs> Here's why. Yeah. 
Lack of diversity. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, he he puts Louis Guzman in everything. This He's is fine. <laughs> He's fine. That's the only thing that could have improved There Will Be Blood, the presence of <laughs> Louis Guzman. Come on, Mr. Plainview. <laughs> <laughs> Buy this oil. Come on, this oil's great. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> But what did you think of what did you think of Magnolia? I guess I guess you could say it's his magnum opus, but or at least the most uh, deeply autobiographical of his work. I can only describe it this way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because this movie's three hours long. Yes, it's three hours with about seven plot threads. Yes, and the first hour is pretty good. Mm-hmm. The middle hour really got me. I was like really invested. I was leaning forward. I was really into it. But then it goes on for another hour and it kind of lost me again. Yeah, I was going to describe the movie the same way um, as kind of peaks and valleys. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps re- reflective of the geography of the city in which it's set. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's um, almost like the city's a character itself. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think you're right, because I think it benefits from an incredibly strong opening, this like 20-minute prologue of capturing all these, uh, all these urban legends with such energy. Mm-hmm. That's, what I, that's what I've um, remembered seeing it, th- seeing it this, this third time. This is my third time seeing it, and I was taken aback by like, how quickly we moved through those and how like, brilliant the filmmaking is behind those. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's like a whole, those, are, those feel like all like, movies within themselves. Yeah, and totally. You could take any of these plot lines and stretch them out to a decent two-hour movie. Yeah. And I think that's one of the demerits of the movie is the fact that it kind of feels like it gives the characters and the plots a little bit of the short shrift. Wait, you think, oh, you think people get short shrift? Or... Sometimes. I feel like the movie, the movie's got a great pace, it's got a great energy, but at the same time, I kind of wish some of these threads were developed a little bit more. Okay, because I, I, I would like them removed entirely <laughs> upon second viewing. And I believe Paul Thomas Anderson confessed um, when he was promoting Inherent Vice. Somebody asked mm-hmm. him about Magnolia, and he's like, oh, boy, yeah, I should have cut a lot of that movie down. <laughs> but, you know, he was a, he was a young kid. He was a, he was a prodigy, like, uh, like one of the young characters in this, in this movie. <laughs> and so, yes, he had the – and after the success of Boogie Nights, he had kind of like all the card to – basically go hog wild and this is this is the result <laughs> yeah and um it is a little self-indulgent uh, yeah I'd, I'd say that <laughs> not gonna lie mm-hmm. yeah so one of the what okay going into paul thomas Anderson's biography his yeah. father used to be a radio announcer of some kind yeah his father was um in the industry i guess mm-hmm. we should we should explain yeah and um he developed. I mean, he was. He's always been a kind of like talented filmmaker. I mean, some people talk about this legendary short film that became the basis for Boogie Nights that he did when he was in high school or something. So, mm-hmm. um, and and he also grew up in the San Fernando Valley where this movie takes place. So, mm-hmm. and so you kind of there's two older characters in this movie which are kind of like they're not a composite. Obviously, they're like two different aspects of his own father. Yeah, um, we should also explain that his father did pass away from cancer, and there are actually two patriarchs in this movie. Mm-hmm. Part, of, part of actually a, a doubling of plot lines here. <laughs> two horrible chauvinist. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible chauvinist ne- ne- uh, negligent fathers who <laughs> exactly um, both come down with cancer and try to pretty much reconcile with their mm-hmm. with their children. Yeah, that felt that felt a little unnecessary to have two of these plot threads. Yes, and should, uh, yeah, I guess we should probably let's go into each plot thread i guess i guess or at least really... like preface each plot thread because they're essentially it's essentially three families mm-hmm. there's the partridge family which is headed by uh, a bedridden basically infirm uh jason robarbs mm-hmm. he plays earl partridge and his the only other character he really interacts with much is his uh in-home nurse played by philip seymour hoffman yes and then she has a he has a gold digger wife who is addicted to pills and screaming her head off. <laughs> played by Julianne Moore. Yeah, if there yeah if there's one thing if that played the movie to cut can out. be the yeah if yeah. played is the right word. <laughs> yes. And then the son that he's trying to reconcile with is Tom Cruise, who's now this uh, this mystery esque uh, <laughs> pickup artist. Yeah, pickup artist. Tame that strange. Yeah. The language, John. The language is a little more appalling than that. Thank you for okay. keeping it PG. <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of that explicit tag, <laughs> and I know we will. 
Mm, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that. Yes. <laughs> but then the second family, there's the Gator family. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Partridge family are a family of producers, and they've produced this very long-running game show called What Do Kids Know? And that game show is hosted by the patriarch of the Gator family, Jimmy Gator. Mm-hmm. who has been doing it for 30 years. He has a wife who, eh, it doesn't matter what she does. Um, but... <laughs> and again, the, uh, he's obviously cheated on his wife an innumerable mm-hmm. amount of times. Yeah. And they also have a daughter named Claudia who's addicted to coke. Yes, and she's screaming her head off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, this pro- the prologue of the movie talks a lot about coincidences. Yeah. I don't, know I, was if, gonna say I don't know if you two... guys picked this up. This is a story about coincidences. Yeah, because all these all these plot lines interact. I was going to say the two worst performances in the movie um, happen to be by women who are addicted to drugs and pretty much screaming their heads off. Is that a coincidence too? Or <laughs> Well, one of the weird things is he says the first character he came up with is Claudia. Interesting. And she's like, A, the least sketched, and B, probably doesn't get that much screen time. Least sketched, um, doesn't get that much screen time, and doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. She's pretty much consigned to her apartment throughout the whole throughout the entire film. Well, no, there's a very specific reason for her plotline and again, the only reason I could think going back to that whole thing where like this is like seven little mini movies. Mhm. Because he, she eventually kind of like goes on a date with this cop played by John C. Riley. Yeah, this is the only plot thread that's actually not connected to the families essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he plays like this hapless cop. All the characters in this movie are hapless. They're all mm-hmm. a little pathetic. <laughs> well, what do you mean? What do you mean hapless? I mean, I think he's, I think he's a, he's a competent cop. Mm, Greg, he loses his gun at one point. I do. <laughs> yeah, very late in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> which I don't know if that was inspired by, inspired by a uh, Kurosawa film. Oh, one of my ooh. favorites. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna drop that knowledge right there. Ooh, he's Again, rubbing himself. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I, it moved a little when I said it, so. <laughs> and the whole point of their kind of uh, plot line is eventually they go on a date, and basically it's like a movie, it's a reflection on the whole matter of courtship. Like, how much do you tell somebody? How honest are you with somebody? Because and she, cause she's very straightforward. She's, you know, high off coke. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and, she... she um, she so wants she's to get paranoid that the relationship won't work out. Exactly, and she like knows she he's a cop, mm-hmm. so she like wants to confess. But instead, she just kind of like rambles like, "How much do you con- confess to somebody? How much do you tell them?" And you asked that we should say things that we should say what we're thinking and not lie about things. Well, I can tell you that this that I lost my gun today. I'm not a good cop. I'm looked down at, and I know that, and I'm scared that once you find that out, you might not like me. Jim, that that was so great, what you just said. I haven't been on a date since I was married, and that's three years ago. And Claudia, whatever you want to tell me, whatever you think might scare me, won't. And I will listen to you. I'll be a good listener to you if that's what you want. You know? You know, I won't judge you. I know I can do that sometimes, and I won't. And I can listen. And you, you, you shouldn't be scared of scaring me off or whatever you, you think that I think, and on and on, you should just say it, whatever it is, and I'll listen to you. You don't know how fucking stupid I am. It's okay. You don't know how crazy I am. It's okay. I've got troubles, okay? I'll take everything at face value. I'll be a good listener to you. I started this, didn't I? Didn't I fuck? Whatever it is, just say it. You'll see. You want to kiss me, Jim? Yes, I do. He confesses to her, I lost my gun today. Yes, and basically reveals that he's he's not as not as competent as he's probably letting on. No, absolutely not. I mean, when we first open with him, he gets the opening scene. He discovers a murder, and there's a local witness who actually knows who killed this person, but he kind mm-hmm. of like plays it off, and I guess that's also meant to demonstrate what kind of a bad cop he is. You think so? Okay. I think so, yeah. All right. Because I, I, in terms of scenes, I would cut. <laughs> that could be another one that that immediately felt dated. Yeah, I guess. But he's also, like, the only black character in the whole movie, so. That's true. <laughs> well, hang on. There's also the there's also the screeching woman who committed the murder, John. <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> this movie's a diversity smorgasbord. 
yeah, John C. Riley isn't really connected to the plot, except through Claudia, and then eventually with the other character played by William H. Macy, who's also yeah, very who's the, loosely... Yeah, the only other character who's kind of tenuously connected to this whole mm-hmm. familial drama. Yeah. Because he was, a, he was a young prodigy who was on the show, but then flamed out from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is now a has-been. Yeah, he's a has-been. His uh, It's implied that his parents took all his winnings. Mm-hmm. Um, he's now, like, working at a... Well, he was working at an electronic store. He got fired because he yeah. couldn't make any sales. He can't, he can't hold down a job. He's absent-minded. He gets into a car wreck. Yeah, it's okay. So there's a there's good performances in this movie, but it's everyone playing to their strengths. You think so? Is Julianne Moore's strength of screaming her head off? <laughs> I don't know if she does it any better than anybody in the business, but you know. Mm. But you've got John C. Riley as kind of this like doughy, earnest kind of like hey girl, like gosh shucks kind of yeah. guy, and then you have William H. Placey or <laughs> William H. Placey, William H. Macy playing Jerry Lundergaard again. Yeah. So. That's true. I, I did want to look at those two plot points, because I found another instance of kind of doubling up here. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of two characters who also, they're, they're kind of, like you said, John C. Bradley's very earnest. Um, William H. Macy's character is very hapless. But one thing they share in common is that they kind of instantly fall in love. Yeah, that's true. And so, but, was, and again, it's isn't that just show how pathetic they are? Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. That's what that's what, that's what I was trying to square is because uh, John C. Riley responds to a noise complaint at Claudia's house, mm-hmm. and then instantly he's head over heels. Yeah. And then um, and he hangs out there for like an exorbitantly long time. Well, yeah, like, John, because he's smitten by her. Yeah, but doesn't he have a job? He's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> he's on duty. That's true. Well, yeah. I mean, if we're gonna talk about implausibilities, he's on patrol alone. <laughs> Which is weird, but... Yeah. And then we find that William H. Macy's character has been carrying this torch for this bartender. Yeah, who wears braces. Yeah, and so wants to wants to get oral surgery. I, again, if you're going to... Maybe maybe you can call it unique or creative in the way that he's motivated and to get corrective <laughs> braces just so that... <laughs> just that he's like this guy that he admires, but the one thing, the one thing that I was... I think is a huge demerit for this movie, the, se- the third time I've seen it now is that um, he falls in love with this bartender. The bartender doesn't say a word. No. And but so again, it, it, these I, two I, plot lines, again, I, I don't, I, I didn't, I, I found them liking them less and less because their conception of love is basically all that you can see. But, and so all, all that John C. Riley's character sees is this um, <laughs> frankly damaged blonde woman. Yeah. And thinking she's the one. And all William H. Macy sees is, is, is this, this handsome bartender. And that's it. That's it. That's all you need to drive you forward in life. But again, like, I think that goes back to the theme of how pathetic they are. Okay. It's like they think this is love. Like, and right. the other thing, too, is when we first see William H. Macy go into the bar, he mm-hmm. sits in the booth in the back. It's implied that he hasn't even spoken to this guy, period. Okay. So it's but, like no, but he's a regular. Like the the waitress recognizes him, but oh, really? okay, I can see what you mean there. Yeah, I thought I thought it implied that it's like he didn't even talk to the bartender at all. Like mm-hmm. all he would do is just look at him from afar. And then to make the scene even more like bothersome, he also has a romantic rival. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he has this like cartoonish Paul Lynn guy regular sitting at the other end of the bar who's like conversating. Yeah, he looks like Roddy McDowell. (laughs) Yeah, he's like he's in a smoker's jacket and he's like, oh, honey. Yeah, and twice in the week he just waves money at the bartender, which is... Yeah. It's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, so it's not exactly nuanced, let's say. No, absolutely not. And again, like because this movie is trying to do so much, you don't Mm -hmm. have room for nuance. You just kind of like gotta get to the finer points. Like well, that's for, not true. I think they do get nuance with Tom Cruise's character. Yeah. Playing um, this again, again, playing to his strengths. <laughs> you have to admit. Oh, you like kind of being like evangelical, like, <laughs> you know, cocky, you know, hot sure, like, hey, here's how yeah. you get women. You know? Intensity, high energy, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, playing to his strengths. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does this sit-down interview with like this Vanity Fair-esque magazine. And she starts asking questions about his family. Mm-hmm. And he obviously doesn't like talking about his family. It's it's implied that his disrespect for women comes from a place of bad relationship with his father. Yes, you can you can it's pick it's up these subtle the, hints, yeah. guys. <laughs> this may have something to do with the sins of the father. I'm not mm. sure. I can't I can't quite put my finger on it, but that might be it. <laughs> and at the same time, again, coincidence 
the father's dying, and he tells he asks Philip Seymour Hoffman, "Can you find my son?" Mm-hmm. And so he uses like this postmate service. He gets a bunch of magazines. He finds the ad. He calls, and he tries to get in contact with. Um, and this is kind of this is a part I liked. Uh, the middle act, there's this huge like ticking clock element. All the plot lines kind of come to the fore. The, like yeah. everything kind of starts to come together, and the pacing and the energy just comes like a like a drum beat. It's just really exciting. Yeah, it's it, cut perfectly. It's all mm-hmm. the drama, like you said, synchronized. And I forgot about that. Yes, there is like a ticking clock element to it because this interview, like he's got a he does he conducts this interview during a break in his seminar. Mm-hmm. In his pickup artist seminar, there there's a young kid. There's this prodigy who. Again, the high drama, like they're going to set the record today, but he's not he's not performing well and needs to go to the, like, on the just, game show. He, on yeah, the game he's show, not performing well on the know. game show. Um, yeah, it, it just urinated himself, you know, because mm-hmm. again, they wouldn't let him go to the bathroom because yeah. again, they're in the middle of filming. Mm-hmm. You know, all these plot lines come to a fore. <laughs> Julianne Moore can't get her drugs. <laughs> <laughs> See, that confused me because I thought she was getting drugs for the dying husband. But uh, yes, she is, and also for herself. I'm assuming. Okay, gotcha. All right, gotcha. Yeah. Um. And yeah, like the middle hour is really enthralling. Yes. And again, like even the fact that just Philip Seymour Hoffman is on hold, and it's still exciting. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> again, he, it, you know, the father doesn't have much time left, and he's getting the runaround with you know, like nine different assistants trying to get in touch with Frank. I believe is his character's name. Tom Cruise's character. Yeah, Frank yeah. T.J. Mackey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know where that. It's a completely made up. <laughs> it's a complete, completely ridiculous pseudonym. I don't know where he got the TJ from, but <laughs> again, it's yeah. You're right. It's some of the most gripping filmmaking I think I've ever seen. Uh huh. And I was totally like, this would make a great climax. Yeah. But then the movie keeps going. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we kind of lose that forward momentum in terms of the characters kind of having, having a the the agency and the momentum to keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. Because Tom Cruise's uh, Tom Cruise's character has completed this interview, mm-hmm. he goes he back kinda, and so and so he didn't like, really complete the interview so much as run the clock out. Yeah, he basically he just the sits yeah, there and not answer any but he doesn't. He refuses to answer any questions. Yeah. It, so the drama, the, the drama following that is whether he's going to see his father or not, mm-hmm. and that doesn't immediately register. You know, uh, John C. Riley has left uh, the Claudia character, mm-hmm. and so like they they've got a date plan, but. Again, I didn't. I didn't like her, so <laughs> I wasn't really invested in their relationship. So it's like, yeah. it's like the third act. It's kind of it kind of builds to that great climax in the middle, but from the rest of it, like where it goes, is kind of is kind of too anomalous and not yeah and not um not driven enough. It becomes because, very somber and very slow as well. Yes, it becomes that kind of meditation on life and regret because again, we get those the two scenes with the two characters dying of cancer. Mm-hmm. One, and both of them are kind of like mournful and full of regret. So yeah, it just kind of takes a downturn. It comes a real yes. downer, guys. This movie <laughs> that's a reflection on life is like a real downer. <laughs> well, John, they did find one interesting way to fill the time. <laughs> How's that? A brief musical number. Oh gosh! All right, <laughs> that's the other thing that really dates this movie. It's enthralled with like Fiona Apple and Amy Mann. Yes. And at one point in the movie, they're all singing to this Amy Mann song, and I'm like, no, 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 this is so cheesy. It's like a bad music video. I wish, yeah, I wish I could go back to maybe behind the scenes and hear Paul Thomas Anderson try to explain to Tom Cruise, okay, you're going to be sitting in a car, and you're going to be sitting, singing along to this Amy Mann song. Mm-hmm. Which, and it also doesn't help that the, the song, to me, maybe other people disagree, but it, it's vaguely reminiscent of what the world needs now <laughs> is love, sweet love. Yeah, that's true. It's very true.
it's just ugh, again like and it, it start it sets up that last hour which again kind of becomes like very slow and plotting and ugh. yeah yeah i didn't really care for the last third of this movie which is a shame because again that really that middle act really got me yeah well, John, in spite of the the roller coaster quality that this movie is, <laughs> well, what was your overall impression? Did you did you still enjoy it? Did you? Yes, I still enjoyed it. It's still mm-hmm. a very good movie. But I guess my problem with this movie is the fact that uh, just the structure is a bunch of short films strung together by coincidence, which is again very '90s. Everyone was trying to do Pulp Fiction, you know. Yeah. Well, I think I think it was really inspired by the Robert Altman movie Shortcuts. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I that was his, that was his true inspiration here. Um, okay. Because he he's a huge admirer of Robert Altman, mm. like a protege of his. So, okay. I think and that's that's another movie of um, small little short stories. They're they Raymond Carver adaptations, but it's all set around Los Angeles. And I think that's what he was trying to do here. Oh, interesting. In addition, okay. yeah, in addition to trying to, so like like a lot of other filmmakers of the era, like inspired by, kind of what he was seeing. So on the on the VCR, <laughs> the VCR generation of filmmakers is what they call this, like Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Kevin Smith, all that. Gotcha. And so, but yeah, he applied a little bit more to his personal life at this point. So, mm-hmm. well, and okay, so when you're making a movie that's basically just a series of interconnected plots, mm-hmm. you do it for two reasons. This is, or at least this is my perspective. Okay, that you do it for two reasons. I know. One, I was about to say you're the expert. Like you've you've studied. I this. am. I yes. Believe it or not, I am. I am. I'm. I'm quite. Uh, quite erudite. Anyway, <laughs> you do it for two reasons. One, mm-hmm. to show off. Uh, I remember a movie a decade ago that came out called like 1144. Yes. Do you remember that movie? I think we watched it together. Yeah, I think we watched it together. I think it's yeah. 1114 is the. A... Oh, you're right. It's 11:14. Yeah. So a bun- again, it's a bunch of these interconnected plots that all end at like 11:14 uh, at night. Yeah. And again, it's like crime, you know, gritty, like ooh. And again, one, it's yeah. Just... One story is a, a gritty crime drama. Another one's, you know, a silly, uh, a funny short. You know, one's mm-hmm. macabre. Yeah. It's and again, it when it comes together, it's like, oh, that's what he did. Good for you. You yeah. know, and, and like, <laughs> obviously, Paul Thomas Anderson isn't trying to go for that. But no. instead, there's only one other direction you can kind of take this kind of movie, which is like, hey, what do all these coincidences mean? Could mean something. Could mean nothing. You decide. <laughs> Again, that's the Pulp Fiction direction. It's like, what does it all mean? Maybe it means nothing. And we, the one thing we haven't talked about is the big finale, the big climax. Oh, is, right. I, yeah, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the, how, because, yeah, I think you're... Well, what was what was the second? Oh, okay. So the two reasons you're saying is to a show off a director's range, I suppose, and versatility. Or your screenwriting chops, like oh, yeah. look at this meticulously crafted. All the gogs fit together. Yeah, yeah. Or to uh, present a little bit more ambiguity in the mm-hmm. like, ch- kind of give it a thematic richness because each each um, story can have its own kind of thematic beat. Mm-hmm. Even though even though the the cogs of the story come together, the cogs of the theme may may not. Exactly. Okay, and you have to ask yourself: Did they come together for a reason or not? Mm-hmm. Which obviously Magnolia doesn't really answer for you. Um, no. Well, yeah. I think I think that <laughs> the themes behind each story are so accessible and they're explicit. very broad. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Again, like sins of the father, like you know, weighing down on the children, mm-hmm. regrets in life. You regrets, know, how you should have lived yeah, your life differently. Um, yeah. Again, the, relationships the of, of media and celebrity like. mm-hmm. relationships, like against uh, Claudia and uh, John C. Riley's character. How do you confess to somebody? How do you be truly honest with somebody? So again, yeah. like like I said earlier, these all could have been stretched out to their own movies with just that one theme. Instead, he tries to mash them all together. Okay. Yeah, but uh, again, we didn't get to the big finale of the movie, and again, <laughs> the, really the plays real, up the real event that unifies everybody. Yeah, the weird, the and again, playing up the absurdity, it starts raining frogs out of nowhere. Yes, and this is something you'll catch on subsequent viewings if you if you have the stomach to watch this movie multiple times, <laughs> if you have the time, maybe yes. maybe you're unemployed. Yeah, and hey, if you're a film student, maybe. Um, <laughs> There are a lot of references to Exodus, the book, uh, the Bible verse, Exodus eight two. Mm-hmm. 
there are tons on this third viewing. I saw tons, tons of eights and twos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that that verse itself refers to the uh, biblical plague of the of it raining frogs on Egypt. That ends up and with the kind of urban legends that the that the film elucidates on at the very beginning. This comes beca- this becomes the big unifying event that kind of combines all these stories. Suddenly their lives are impacted by this natural disaster of frogs raining down in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Well, okay, but here's the thing. And, you know, sometimes you read the trivia and sometimes it ruins a movie for you. Yeah. He didn't know about the Bible verse when he first started writing this. That That is complete bullshit. <laughs> I no, don't here's the thing. Here's the thing. For a second. <laughs> no, he had planned to have it raining frogs. But the idea of it raining frogs came from a book that the kid is reading later in the movie uh i think the book is called like on the s on the essence of nonsense or something like that okay again playing with the absurdity and in that book you know it starts raining frogs why who knows again it's absurd and then at one point while he was writing the script someone mentions it's like oh like the biblical plague and he's like what (laughs) and he's (laughs) and someone explains to him oh in exodus chapter eight two whatever yeah you know it rains it rains frogs and so then he went back and then started putting in those little biblical Easter eggs. But the impetus of the idea is not biblical. Okay. Well, again, that. so you were saying during the conception of the film, not during filming, not like after the fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless, unless that itself is a huge coincidence too. That <laughs> Maybe it to is. Insert what does it all mean? Everywhere in the movie, yeah. And it just so happened to coincide with the ending that he wrote about the uh, uh, a tempest of frogs. Exactly, <laughs> a deluge of frogs. I think we're missing the forest for the trees because this is a this is a a family drama essentially. Mm-hmm. Sure, there's some histrionics, but there's nothing as as absurd as this kind of happening, and it throws the whole throws the whole movie kind of in flux. Yeah. Now, granted, the sequence is very well done. Yeah. Again, the, uh... again like you, you don't expect in this is a uh, I think a thirty million dollar independent movie mm-hmm. to have such like quality production of a like a convincing you know. Of of rain of frogs coming um, down in Los Angeles, like I, I was. All right, completely... don't give it too much credit. We're talking like Jumanji level special effects here. Okay, hang on. <laughs> Have you watched Jumanji lately? Yeah, <laughs> those monkeys are terrible. <laughs> I know, but the frogs do not look that bad. So from a d- production design standpoint, a plus. <laughs> okay. But in terms of the movie, I can't I can't quite square. Like I, again, I think it's a, a tribute to his imagination, but. Again, I, again, I much preferred <laughs> when all the plots were kind of clo- uh, when the uh, at the midpoint when all the plots were kind of coalescing. The editing really kind of brought it all together. And here, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it was all in aid of. <laughs> yeah, again, I think it's just to go back to that whole idea of absurdity. That life is just sometimes absurdity and coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes life just happens. Sometimes it fits together nicely. Sometimes it doesn't. What does it all mean? You decide. <laughs> you think he left it ambiguous for the... That one he left ambiguous for the audience to... Well, yeah. And I, if that's the only regret I think he has, is that the narrator didn't go, You decide! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about the opening and closing narration. I like the energy of it. I like the way it's done. But again, I yeah. feel like it's just kind of there to be like, Spell it out for you. I feel I feel like if if there was no narration, I would be completely untethered from it. 
I guess that's true. I yeah. do like that there's some hand-holding there, because otherwise I'm completely lost. <laughs> well, and it's also, like, it, it is kind of a perfect bookend. Like, maybe if he smattered those throughout the movie, again, that would have just added to the runtime, and Lord knows he didn't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fact that he only saves it for the beginning and the end, that's also kind of nice. Yeah. Well, what I didn't like, the very last shot is Claudia. That is true. It's just a slow dolly in on her face. Yeah. And John C. Riley has come back, and I guess... Uh, forgiven her for I don't know running out on their first date I suppose yeah I and so I didn't I didn't feel like that was a that was a great terminus for the movie I suppose yeah <laughs> it didn't feel appropriate whereas I don't know if there was like some like winking at the audience <laughs> just, <laughs> like a... just say it Greg Paul Thomas Anderson can't write female characters okay just say it just say it we all thinking it we're all thinking well hang on <laughs> as an admirer of the film Inherent Vice because okay. I admire all of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies and love them. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, the character, it wasn't Shasta. It was the, the woman that narrates that movie. <laughs> uh, Joaquin Phoenix's current girlfriend. That's good narration right there. Which is not in the book, which you should not read because it's terrible. But <laughs> Inherent Vice, a.k.a. Hey, my best attempt at making the Big Lebowski again. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Stay I saw on. that movie in the theater, okay? Look, don't say I'm not dedicated, all right? <laughs> I'm not saying you're not dedicated, but um, what I am saying is that... Uh, what was I saying? <laughs> How do we get on Inherent Vice? Oh, yeah, we were talking about uh, writing female characters. Yeah, writing female characters. Yeah. I guess it's no coincidence that Paul Thomas Anderson's best movie, There Will Be Blood, features no female characters. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, uh, Amy Adams is really good in um, the Master. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but yeah, he's he's much he's much stronger at writing en- enigmatic men. <laughs> that is <let's> true. Say. <laughs> What's that movie's got coming out this fall? Um, shoot, it doesn't even have a title yet. It's like but the it's got dressmaker Daniel or something. And it's about yeah, fashion in the fifties in London. So yeah, he's playing like a dressmaker or something like that. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the movie's called. Gotcha. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Now you look the fool. Unprepared, Greg. Well, no, it does. It it honestly doesn't have a title yet. Oh, really? Yeah. It's just untitled Paul Thomas Anderson slash Daniel Day Lewis project. Yes. Oh, I would love it if that were the title. <laughs> How meta. I mean, you get you get it 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 lays out everything right there in the queue. You know, there's no mystery. Mm-hmm. I am looking forward to that movie. I, I am too, but... Even though I don't slobber at the feet of all these auteur directors like you do. <laughs> you look like a perfect fit. It's uh, Magnolia is a fine movie, but I on these subsequent viewings, it's kind of diminishing returns for me. I'm seeing kind of, kind of the cracks and mm. maybe just the demerits of it. Maybe that's just me being a uh, being a heartless negative person. But <laughs> <laughs> I think with enough time and separation from any movie, it starts to feel a little dated. Yeah, um, this movie doesn't. This movie doesn't feel particularly dated, but mm, I for me, my issues were were you know technical and pacing well not technical and pacing it sounds more like story beats and yeah again it's just overstuffed and yeah again this comes down to personal preferences i i prefer a movie that kind of is is tighter and leaner whereas you you like ambition Mm -hmm. or you're more you're more willing to rate ambition than than i will so i'll I'll give it more credit let's say that (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, well, will we ever be able to come to a consensus on anything? I don't know. John, our discussion was as meandering as Magnolia itself. <laughs> Excellent point. Let's yeah. let's try to wrap things up. Let's try to focus in, maybe, with a little bit of spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Spotlight. Spotlight tonight. Gonna go out, gonna, gonna get, get some, some food. food. <laughs> Again, Spotlight, I, I did this before. I forget what episode, which episode. Mm-hmm. Spotlight, the, mu- the music of Bob's Burgers. <laughs> they just released their album this year. After Go seven seasons. Yes. <laughs> they were like, all right, let's capitalize on this. <laughs> John, what do you have for Spotlight? For Spotlight this week, I started a new book. Um, it's part of a trilogy. It's called The Last Policeman. Have you heard of this book? No. Um, it's a kind of speculative fiction um, I'm not that far into it, but it's got a really intriguing premise. Okay. A meteor is coming to hit the Earth in six months. Doomed. No survivors. Mm-hmm. We're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, we don't know that yet. <laughs> I, I, no, no. We're fucked from perspective of the people in the book. Okay. Yeah. As far as they're concerned, there's going to be no survivors. No survivors. All right. Basically, the world descends into chaos. Uh-huh. Anarchy. Except for one man. One man who's a policeman. Okay. So he puts on his uniform. Wait, is this the last policeman? Or He's technically the last policeman. <laughs> Got it. Because <laughs> he gets up, puts on his suit, tie, puts on his badge, opens his holster, gets his gun, is like, Phew. time to get to work. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's like the last decent human being who's like, look, I have a job to do. Okay. And he, you know, goes about just trying to do his job. And again, a world that's just descended into chaos. Okay. And even those people who are still kind of law-abiding, they're still wondering, like, what are you doing this for? Like, what's the point? The other kind of intriguing plot point is uh, he see- he comes across a suicide. Uh, okay. Yeah, the world's ending in six months. Everyone's committing suicide. <laughs> but he thinks yeah. it's suspicious. So he starts investigating. And again, everyone around him is like, why? Why are you bothering? Mm-hmm. The world's ending. <laughs> But again, he's just so committed to his duty and so committed to law and order. Okay. So it's a character-wise, I don't know if it's going to get a lot richer, but thematically, I think there's a lot going on here. And it's as much as, you know, kind of a mystery story as it is a rumination on, you know, what humans do in the face of tragedy. Yeah, it sounds like a good twist on regular detective fiction. Mm Mm-hmm. Where obviously there's still a moral code in place, but the the society the 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 society surrounding it mm-hmm. has completely is so radically down. changed. So yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's a very intriguing premise. Okay, and uh, the author I don't know if the author's won awards for this book, but he's definitely won awards in the past. So he's uh, okay. Yeah, and this is the first in a trilogy, or yeah, it's the longest of it. like the other two are kind of just like subsequent. They they feel kind of like tacked on. Okay. It's not meant to be like a big like three arc structure. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of more mysteries for him to kind of solve and stuff like that. And again, okay. I haven't gotten to him, so <laughs> okay, I can't judge. But their good, good enough so far. All right. Yeah, yeah. It's a very intriguing premise, and okay. I'm, I'm kind of into it. So all right. Yeah. Nice. Highly recommended. Okay. Mm-hmm. Does it remind you of any other detective fiction that may be coming out in the next month or so? Oh jeez. Oh no. We'll talk about that later. How about we're that? We're going. Part? We're going here, aren't we? <laughs> no, we're going to get there later. Okay. All right. Fine. What do you have for spotlight, Greg? Please, big announcement, big don't, announcement coming from me don't, soon. Don't, don't, don't save that for spotlight, okay? <laughs> I won't. I won't. Spotlight is for no. That's of... going at the very start of the episode, so that people don't miss it. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> All right. What do you have for spotlight, Greg? Well, I, I obviously we're enamored by the work of, or at least um, intrigued by the work of Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. Outside of his own movies, I was looking for anything that literally you could. I could recommend that's mm-hmm. even tangentially connected to the work of PTA, as his friends call him. <laughs> as his chums call him. Hey, yeah. PTA. Yeah, hey. S- smack him on the shoulder. Yeah. They all talk like that in the San Fernando Valley. Any event. <laughs> and I remember that at the time he was making Magnolia, you mentioned Fiona Apple. Mm-hmm. He was obviously enamored with the, the work of Fiona Apple, and he directed a music video of hers mm-hmm. that's a cover of the Beatles' song, Across the Universe. Ah. And this was included on the soundtrack of one of my all-time favorite movies. <laughs> Across the Universe. No. <laughs> no, that movie's dreadful. This is an anti-spotlight for Across the Universe. I love <laughs> okay. that movie like a plague. 
Gotcha. But no, this is this is for uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, Pleasantville. Oh. Yeah. Have you, have you seen Pleasantville? I have seen Pleasantville. Isn't it great? It's okay. <laughs> what do you mean, just okay? Uh, uh, I don't know. It kind of left me cold. Left you cold? Okay. Yeah. It, was it the, the obviousness of its <laughs> thematic? It's very on the nose. I think what bothered me about it is like the toby Maguire character doesn't go through a lot of change well no i th- I, th- I think that's part of the story process i mean yeah. we should probably explain two kids get sucked into a 50s typical 50s sitcom mm-hmm. their normal lives are you know typical 90s kids hashtag 90 kids yeah <laughs> they're like kids you know yeah. very cynical ugly world and they get zipped into this you know clean cut you know 1950s uh, leave it to beaver father knows best kind of sitcom yeah, yeah. Nothing goes wrong. Everything, everything's somewhat perfect mm-hmm. and, until but, um, this. The, Toby Maguire is the protagonist, but his sister, played by Reese Witherspoon, starts to mess up this world. Yes, with sex. <laughs> <laughs> it starts with sex, and so things start changing in the world, and and she basically introduces color to it. Exactly. You criticize um, Toby Maguire's character. Initially, he loves the, he loves being sucked uh, sucked into this '50s sitcom because it's so in such sharp contrast to his to his typical life of his parents are his divorced parents arguing and things like mm-hmm. that. So yeah, and so that's why he doesn't encounter a lot of change. And as a story beat, doesn't actually change color in the same way change to color in the way other characters do. Well, no, that's what kind of bothered me about the movie is that you're setting up this contrast, and I thought they would be in more conflict. But Tobey Maguire's character, uh, who who plays his sister, is it Kirsten Dunst? I can't remember. No, it's Re- I just said it. It's Reese Witherspoon. Oh, sorry, sorry, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, I thought it would put him in contact or like conflict with Reese Witherspoon's character, but it really doesn't. He kind of switches over to her side very quickly and realizes things need to change. Yeah, well, I think well, I think the the way in which he does see that change is with his his uh, fictional mother, mm. who's yeah. played by Joan Allen, the great Joan Allen, mm-hmm. and how unhappy she kind of secretly is. Yeah, and how she, how unhappy she is, and how she pines for a character played by Jeff Daniels. Top flight cast. Oh, absolutely, yeah, great cast. Jeff Daniels yeah. is great, and this is kind of a he's a soda jerk uh, operator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess is what you would call that. But not a real, as far as from a jerk as you can be. <laughs> he has an artist soul, though, and yes, he can't really express that. There's William H Macy too. Mm-hmm. He plays the patriarch. Mm-hmm. Again, hapless, you know, <laughs> Jerry Lundergaard. Uh, yeah. What's going on? Yeah. I even like J.T. Walsh as the um, bigoted jerk. <laughs> yeah, so uh, color starts to be introduced into this world mm-hmm. and to the characters themselves. Yeah. And this puts a lot of tension in the town, and eventually they have to segregate the black yes. and white people from the coloreds. <laughs> Very on the nose. Yeah. So okay. So that's that, that's not the most sophisticated social commentary in the world. But in spite of that, I think this is actually one of my biggest. Mer- I saw this when I was a teenager, and I think it's probably one of the best movies for teenagers. I think. Mm-hmm. Not only in that kind of obvious social commentary, but also just kind of kind of capturing the attitude of what they what they feel about their world, like not being in control and kind of instead sequestering yourself to kind of a fictional world. Okay. Instead, yeah, you're right. It does capture that quite well. Yeah, I just so, think uh, plot-wise, it doesn't hit enough beats for me. Okay. Like again, like I said, Tobey Maguire's character kind of like changes sides very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like Don Knotts's character really doesn't have enough to do. But, no, he's the well, John because he's the MacGuffin. He's the. <laughs> He's, well, no, he's basically I was expecting... the impetus to put him in. Like, did you did you expect him to go through an arc or anything like that? I expected him to be more of a foil and to kind of have more control. Like, again, I was picturing him more to be like a trickster god, and instead he's just <laughs> kind of like, "Hey, Toby Maguire, stop it!" <laughs> well, well, I, I, I guess we have a difference of opinion on what we expect from Don, <laughs> the, the acting abilities of Don Knotts. How dare you? <laughs> okay, Don Knotts is a legend. How dare you? <laughs> Academy Award nominee Don Knotts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, I think this is a, a tremendous movie, and it doesn't actually doesn't feel dated at all. I think it also it kind of captures a lot of well the, the fact that it's also somewhat of a period piece, and <laughs> I think it works with audiences as much as much as it did you know 19 years ago. So. It is a it is a crowd pleaser. I'm not gonna yeah, lie, it's a crowd pleaser, family friendly PG rating. <laughs> <laughs> gonna give there's, that a thumbs there's up. There's a little bit of nudity. 
Just a hint. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. parents. In the, most, in the most realistic scene in the movie, uh, a woman experiences, um, what's what's the term for it? <laughs> Sexual enlightenment, and uh, a tree explodes into flames. Can women experience that? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> well, speak for yourself, bro, but for me... <laughs> Nailed them. God, we're so good at this. I know we are. <laughs> and you can help us continue doing this. Yes. By subscribing on Apple Podcasts or mm-hmm. Stitcher and leaving a review. We're not even asking for money. No. Do we have a Patreon? No. No. We would never ask for your money. No. We do this out of the kindness. We don't need it. Yeah. yeah. We're loaded. <laughs> <laughs> we're so fucking rich. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we do, what we do ask is for your support in the forms of subscriptions reviews positive mm-hmm. feedback always makes us feel good mm-hmm. it's our love language maybe like our facebook page and maybe mm-hmm. follow us on twitter at aspiring yep. snobs yeah and once you're done with that send us an email send us your thoughts your recommendations at aspiring snobs at gmail.com oh yeah we take recommendations all the time mm-hmm. speaking of which sean we've got a new movie coming next week that we're going to discuss get out your theremin because <laughs> next week we're going to be discussing the 1950 classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's, it's, sorry, is this based on a Twilight Zone short? or I, it's, it's one of those... It's, I think it's the pinnacle of cheesy 50s sci-fi movies. Okay. I think well, this is also the apex. Terms, it's the pinnacle of the quality of that that you can expect from that genre, <laughs> that subgenre. I think you'll like it. This is my recommendation. I've already mm-hmm. seen it, but Greg hasn't. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get right. Greg's thoughts on that next week. And then following that, we'll also get some fan recommendations in there. Mm-hmm. We've got we've got a lot. We've got <laughs> Ugh, we could always so use more. so many movies. Ugh. Yep, uh, it's, it's it's exhausting work, but you know what? We yeah. do. We, we but that shouldn't through. discourage you. Again, if you have suggestions or ideas for us, please send them our way. Yes, please do. Mm. And until next time, keep keep aspiring. Oh, all right, fine. I'm <laughs> <gonna> do it, <laughs> I was gonna pip you. I thought you were gonna give it to me, but. Mm.